Hello, class. How's everybody tonight? Hopefully, everybody got their TCU pens that I sent out for the, uh, what was that? That was a giveaway to celebrate 20,000 downloads. So everybody should have those by now, but one of them, and you can use them to take notes. I warned everybody last week that this episode we're going to get into the murders in detail. So big trigger warning, we're going to talk about the sexual assault and murder of kids. So I know that's not for everybody, just want to let you know in case you're, you know, sensitive to that topic. But the murder started in July of 1963. And as far as what exactly led up to them deciding to commit murder, it varies. And Myra has her story and Ian has his. So I'll just tell Ian what their stories are. And, well, you can believe whoever you want to. According to Myra, they got this black van you know, from her neighbor named Ben, and they would drive around, like, scouting for victims, like a lot of serial killers do. They would park and watch kids, and if you're wondering why they're targeting kids, we'll talk about that later in psychology. Ian would like to pick out an imaginary victim, like, okay, say him or her, and they weren't specific about boys or girls, and he would talk about what he'd like to do with, and this is really weird and disturbing, he would call the kid it instead of him or her. I don't, I don't know, but sometimes he took pictures when they were out scouting. And this is definitely for a fact because Duncan Staff, that's the guy who inherited boxes of Myra's shit after she died. He found negatives of boys playing, it says football, I'm thinking it means soccer, cause England, you know, in a schoolyard. And Malcolm, the forensic psychologist, said, quote, I think that Brady's knowledge, attitude, personality, and what he wanted to do had this effect of bringing out the cruel, determined streak in Mara, end quote. And I have the phrase bring out underlined. And I wanted to stress that because he said bring out. He didn't say create. And the difference is if you're bringing something out, of somebody. The trait has to be there to begin with. Do you, do you see what I mean? Like, you can't just take somebody who's just old, any old person and turn them into a killer. They have to have something already there in themselves that's gonna allow them to become that. And during sex, or probably after sex, you know, during pillow talk, they would discuss the perfect murder. And this after sex time, the pillow talk time, we're going to see in couples, this is a really important time when they discuss stuff that's emotional, important, and I don't know if you remember when we talked about Carol Bundy and Doug Clark, after they had sex and they were having their pillow talk discussions, that's when he first brought up to her the idea of, I think with them, that it was, uh, he said that he fantasizes about having sex with dead people. But this is their time that they would discuss this. So Myra told Duncan's staff this story. And this is how Ian persuaded her to kill with him. 
She said one day she woke up on the couch with a hangover and her gran was yelling about the state that she was in. And Myra says she couldn't remember what happened the previous night. So she goes and rides her bicycle and crashes. And she's like, what's wrong with me? I'm like really groggy. So somehow she found out that Ian had drugged her with grand sleeping pills. And she was mad, so she avoided him for a couple of days. And she, during this period of time, talked to one of her friends and said that she was fed up with Ian. And the friend said, well, nobody likes him. And you're getting a, quote unquote, bad reputation. So Myra said that she decided to write a letter to the police in case something happened to her. And she told her friend May to put it under her rug. And if something happened to Myra or she disappeared or something, to give it to the police. And then her story goes on that Ian came over to her house and put down all these pictures, like pornographic pictures of her naked. And she didn't remember them being taken. She said she had a stupid, drunken expression in them. And he said he'd taken them while she was passed out. And then he put away the pictures, like, dramatically and, and left. And she took this as a threat, like, if you don't help me commit murders, I'm going to show somebody or do something with these pictures. So then she said she went to a friend, Meg, and took back this letter. And um, I don't know about you, but I think it's it's time to put on the high waiting boots because the bullshit is getting pretty high in here. And I'm not the only one. Professor Malcolm says, quote, I find the idea that she was frightened into taking part in the murders unconvincing. The attraction of the relationship and what's going on is more powerful than being abused, end quote. So then she said that he made her drive around looking for victims. This is a quote directly from Myra. It's pretty long, but I'll read it to you. She said, quote, I parked the van against a wall and just sat there. I did see a few kids some on their own, and it was easy enough to do what he'd told me, but I just couldn't. There was no way I could do it. I went in and told him I'd tried, but couldn't find anyone whom it was safe to approach. He said he'd seen me parked in the van against the wall. He said I'd have to try again the next day, Sunday. So apparently she tried this again and didn't do anything. She said, quote, he went mad. Didn't he realize kids were told not to talk to or go with strange men? That was why he needed me to pick someone up, because I was a woman and a child would be more trusting of a woman. I burst into tears and he slapped my head backwards and forward and began strangling me. I managed to fight him off and told him to stop it. I knew I had to get away for both my sake and that of my family. I secured an interview with NAAFI headquarters in London who were recruiting for people to work for the British forces in Germany. I got the job in spite of feeling that I had failed my medical. When I got back to Manchester's Piccadilly train station, Brady was waiting for me, which I didn't expect. We drove home in silence. He stripped me, gagged me, and beat me with a cane, raped me anally, which he did often because he knew I cried with the pain and hated him doing that to me. Then he turned me over and urinated inside me. Before leaving, he warned me that if I ever tried to get away again, I'd be the sorriest person alive, end quote. Wow. What? No, 
I don't believe that, in case you're wondering. She mentioned something about NAAFI, and that is Navy, Army, and Air Force institutions. And that was like, it was like the military, but it's not, I don't know how to explain it. It, it was more like a service thing. And as to whether or not she really went to this interview and got this job, who knows? Like I said, she was like a pathological liar. So we'll never know. Now, before we get into Ian's version of God Into the Murders, I have to talk a little bit about a book, and this one's going to be important in their relationship. We know that they both read it, but how important it actually was, or you know, how much it had to do with what happens, we don't really know. The book is called Compulsion by Meyer Levin, and it's described as a best-selling novel of the most cold-blooded crime of the century. And it supposedly the author's aim was to discuss how their background in psychology contributed to their actions and paved the way for the early true crime books like In Cold Blood and The Executioner's Song. This book came out in the 1950s and Duncan Staff, he's like me, he said he as soon as he heard this book mentioned, he ran out, well not like literally ran out, but hurried up and got on the internet and got it and read it. And I went to buy it. This is so funny. It's kind of embarrassing too, but and it's like, you know, Amazon, it's like you already have this on your Kindle. And I was like, oh, I do. I haven't read it yet. Okay. Well, anyway, it's a fictionalized account about a real murder. And I do want to talk about this murder because like I said, it's important. You've probably heard of it if you're a true crime fan, but it's the 1924 kidnapping and murder of Bobby Franks. He was 14. The kids who murdered him, Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb, they were 18 and 19 years old. It was described as a thrill kill. Like they were both two spoiled brats who were bored with life. They were into existentialism, Nietzsche, a lot like Ian. And they wanted to kill somebody just for fun, just to see if they could get away with it. Well, they kidnapped this kid, Bobby Franks, and they killed him. And they're such morons. They're like, oh, we're so smart. We're smarter than everybody. We're going to get away with this, blah, blah, blah. And the one idiot, his prescription glasses fell off at the crime scene. And it didn't take the police long to... How do you lose your fucking glasses? Really? It obviously didn't take the police long to trace where they came from. So supposedly Ian was obsessed with this book and he got the idea from this book of committing the perfect murder. And Myra said she read it, and she said it, it seems like a rubbish thriller. And Ian supposedly used this book as a blueprint for the perfect murder. He would later in prison tell people that he talked to that there was never any discussion of this perfect murder thing. It was something that Myra made up. But I, I question this one because we know, like I said, we know they read the book. They both admitted that. The book has the elements, like I said, the um, entitled brats who just wanted to get away with something. Their thinking and their philosophy was so similar to Ian's that I'm having a hard time believing that this book had absolutely no effect on him. They were a lot like him in thinking that we can do what we want. We're smarter than everybody. We're, we're entitled, you know, it, uh, rules and morality and such don't matter, and we want to commit the perfect crime just for fun. And that sounds really exactly 
what Ian and Myra did. So it's July 1963, and they're there one night, Ian and Myra at Grand's house, and Ian's like, okay, we need a written plan. We have to write this all out. He was like all into planning, and for a lot of these killers that are organized, which was definitely Ian, I think that planning is half the fun. So they're sitting on the floor, and they have paper all over the place. They're writing and writing notes and lists and all this stuff, and they finally came up with this master plan. And yeah, I'm going to go over it with you, because obviously it's important. According to Ian, quote, The first principle was absolutely fundamental. There must be no thread connecting our starting point with our destination and vice versa. All surfaces had to be free of tire and footmarks, hairs, fibers, and fingerprints, end quote, and the other items on the list. Duplicates of all clothes, including shoes. The set of clothes and shoes used during the murder would be burned and the ashes then thrown in a river. Before they would go out to commit murders, they would count all their buttons and after, count them again to make sure they had the same number, make sure they didn't leave any buttons around, and then clean their buttons. The vehicle used had to be cleaned thoroughly before and after, quote, the event. That's what he called it. And this is a good example of how he saw a kidnapping and murder as like a sport or a game, which to him it was. The inner and outer workings of guns had to be free of fingerprints. That would be like bullets and everything. And ironically, they never used any guns in any of their crimes. They used disposable plastic sheets to cover the inside of the vehicle. The house had to be cleared of anything that might arouse suspicion. Items would be put into suitcases and taken to the left luggage area of the railroad station. And what that is, is just like lockers at a railroad station where people kept their luggage. And it was this that would eventually lead to their undoing. In the, quote, target area, which it would be the area where they're going to either pick up somebody, you know, kidnap somebody, or commit the murder, the vehicle couldn't be parked where it was visible from any windows. They planned to use false license plates. All weapons, and as it turns out, it was knives, had to be broken and disposed of over a wide area after the murder. They had to establish alibis that were valid for 14 days. And if you're wondering why this random number, according to Ian, few people could remember where they were 14 days ago. And after the crime, they were supposed to adhere to their routine behavior. This was actually a really important one because in profiling, you're supposed to look for differences in a person's behavior after the crime or what's called post-crime behavior. Then he had this master list. It was real detailed. It had cross-references, footnotes, different colors of stuff and you know, all this detailed shit, totaling 30 pages, and all their other papers that they were scribbling on, they burned. The master list they put in a brown envelope with other stuff like lists of contacts, that would be people that Ian knew, maps and photographs, address books, etc. 
And the next day, they hid this envelope among piles of files that were no longer used in a warehouse at Millwards. And later on, Myra would destroy this. So they were toasting. They were all proud of themselves that they had made this list. And they were discussing excitedly what uh, what was going to happen, what they were going to do. And Myra later wrote to a journalist years later about her thoughts concerning this. And she said, quote, I knew then and still know that there must be a callous streak in my nature, a cruel streak even. There must have been, and I still don't know what it was rooted in or where it came from. Sometimes I thought I'd drive myself insane trying to discover what it was, end quote. And that's like what I said a little bit ago. There had to have been already something in her that Ian brought out, and apparently she realized that too. So we're going to talk about the first murder, and Myra's version and Ian's version are very, very different. And we'll talk about the victim first. And this was 16-year-old Pauline Reed. You may have heard me mention her a couple times before. The first time I mentioned her was when Myra was a kid. We know that she protected kids, other kids who were bullied. And Pauline and her brother Paul were two of these kids. They were like in the neighborhood and they were well known to Myra, which makes it especially heinous that this was somebody she knew and trusted. Pauline was actually friends with Mo, Myra's sister. And the other time I mention her is, you know, David Smith. That's the guy that Maureen's going out with. And their mom said he was a dirty bugger and she didn't like the fact that Maureen was with him. And we learn that. We don't really know the exact relationship that David had with Pauline but just that they were quote-unquote seen together, which could be nothing, really. But apparently Maureen was, like, jealous of her, and she called her a dump, meaning, I guess. I mean, she wasn't. She was a beautiful girl, but I'm assuming that meant ugly. So that's Pauline. Pauline lived with her dad, Amos, and her mom, Joan, and her little brother, Paul, who was a year younger. Her dad worked at a bakery, and she worked there with him as like an apprentice baker. I think that she wanted to be a baker when she grew up. She was described as very quiet and not the type to get into a car with a stranger, which she didn't because, again, she knew Myra. The family was Catholic, and Pauline went to a convent school. So the day was Friday July 12th, 1963, and Pauline planned to go to a dance that evening. Her dad worked at the bakery, and he came home, took a nap, and then went out to the Steelworks pub. Remember, Myra's dad went there too. Then he came home for tea, which I think is like dinner or supper, and it was around 7.30, and Pauline's mom, Joan, was flustered. She was trying to find somebody to go to the dance with Pauline. And this dance was at the Railway Workers Social Club on Chaplin Street. Her friends, Linda and Pat, were originally supposed to go with her. But then their mothers found out that they sold alcohol at this place. And they said, no dice. Ians aren't going to a place that sells booze. So, 
Pauline gets ready to go. Some sources say she had on a pink and gold party dress, and other sources say she had on a black skirt and a shirt. She had on new white high-heeled shoes and white gloves and a light blue coat, which I can't figure out because it's the middle of July. And English listeners, I know I have some. Is it really that cold in England that you need a coat in July? I'm just curious. Her hair was curled. She had perfume on. She looked really nice. And before they left, her mom gave her her favorite gold necklace to wear. So Pauline and her mom set out and they're trying to find some other girls, other friends that Pauline can go to the dance with. So they go to see this girl, Barbara, if she can go to the dance and she's not allowed. So then Joan asked Linda's mother. Linda's mother says no. And Pauline was determined. She said, quote, I'll just have to go on my own. And she walked down Taylor Street, and that's the last her mother ever saw her. Joan went home kind of annoyed, frustrated, troubled. She didn't like the idea of Pauline going to the dance by herself. And she saw something white in the street. It was one of Pauline's gloves. She must have dropped it. And I'm calling her Pauline. I think that's how Americans would say it. But if you listen to the British documentaries, they pronounce it Pauline. I don't know. I'm just going to call her Pauline. So Paul comes home about 930 and they're like, hmm, well, he's home. Where's Pauline? And they, they thought it was kind of odd, but they went to bed thinking, you know, she'll turn up. But one of the parents woke up at two o'clock and realized Pauline wasn't home yet. So they all get dressed and go out looking for her. And I told you there's two very different versions of what happened that night. Myra said that she was driving the van and Ian was behind her on his motorcycle and that he was supposed to signal by flashing his headlights when he saw somebody that he found was interesting. And that meant for Myra to pull over and try to lure the kid into the car. And they had a prearranged ruse. And I think this is dumb, but apparently it worked. So it couldn't have been that dumb. The ruse was that Myra would tell the kid that she had been to Saddleworth Moor earlier. And she lost an expensive glove. And if the kid would come and help her look for it, she would give them a bunch of 78 RPM. I don't know what those are. They That's before my time. Records. And the records were conveniently sitting on the seat in exchange for their trouble. And I find this hard to believe because you're driving a van or car, whatever it is. Somebody's behind you on a motorcycle. When they see somebody that they like, they're supposed to flash their lights. It just seems like it doesn't make sense that you would think that that person would be in front of you because how can you drive and look for somebody and then be looking in your rear view mirror for the other person to flash the lights? It just doesn't make sense. But anyway, this is Myra's version and I'll read you the whole thing. It's a big quote. Quote, we set off and soon saw a little girl on her own across the other side of the road. He flashed his light, but I drove on. He overtook me and told me to stop the van. Why hadn't I picked that girl up? It was an ideal opportunity with virtually no one anywhere near her. 
I said she was eight years old. Her name was Mary, and she lived next door but one to my mother. He grudgingly agreed that I was right to drive past, to carry on down Froxmer Street, and to watch for his headlamp light. I saw a young girl walking down the street on her own with nobody else in sight. He flashed his light, and I slowly drew up just behind the girl and opened the passenger door and called to her to ask if she could spare a minute. She turned round, and to my horror, it was Pauline Reed. I knew I had a choice. I could either just wave at Pauline, drive past her, in which case she would have lived, and I would have to endure the consequences of Brady's rage. This all happened in split seconds. I made the choice of having to sacrifice Pauline so that my own family would be safe. I felt sick with fear and self-loathing as I asked her if she wanted a lift. As I arrived, I can still feel the same emotions I felt then. I knew she would never get to the dance, or any other dance, ever. I was driving her to her death. As I approached the lay-by, it was still early light, but with very little, if any, sun. He arrived in what seemed like seconds. We both got out of the van, and I told Pauline this was Ian, and to him I said, this is Pauline. She lives quite near to Grand's and is a friend of Mo. He ignored the implications of what I'd said and smiled at her. He said to Pauline that they start making their way up the bit of a hill, and I stood for a moment waiting, watching them. Supposing I phoned the police, and they came, and nothing had happened upon the moor. Both he and Pauline would say they were looking for an expensive glove, and were waiting for me to join them. The police would think I was some kind of crank. We would have to go back home, dropping Pauline off at the dance hall and I shuddered at the consequences. I didn't know what to do. Then I heard a scrambling noise and looked out at the passenger seat window. It was Brady. He asked me if anything had happened, and I said no. Then he told me to get out and follow him. He led me to her body, which I tried not to look at. I didn't know at the time he was testing me, and that there was no need for me to be there. He told me to look at her. I'll never be able to forget what I saw. I stood and looked at the dark outline of the rocks against the horizon of the dark sky, and three people died that night. Pauline, my soul, and God. No God would let what had happened happen. We didn't speak much on the way home. Both of us were lost in our own separate thoughts. Then he said, if you had shown any sign of backing out, you would have ended up in the same grave as she did. I just said, I know. End quote. And she said that she cried and he stroked her hair. And yes, I read that in a cynical, melodramatic voice because it's bullshit. Most of the people that are familiar with this case, meaning authors, journalists, psychiatrists, people who've talked to both Ian and Mara, concur that although they both lie and exaggerate, that Ian's version is probably much closer to the truth. And besides the thing about he's behind her and the logistics of that, she makes the statement about sacrificing Pauline so that her family would be safe, which she's still trying to present this thing to absolve her own guilt that Ian had threatened her and her family if she didn't go along with his murderous plans which, like I said, is bullshit. Myra may have been 
under his spell, so to speak, or somewhat brainwashed. But like Ian was so fond of quoting Nietzsche, Nietzsche said, we all have free will. And that includes Myra, meaning she could have stopped this anytime she wanted to. Nobody was forcing her to participate in this or any other murders. Now, according to Ian, they took the suitcases. Remember, these are the ones that have all the incriminating evidence in them, like their master plans and all their written down stuff and maps and all this stuff. The night before the murder, they took them to the train station and locked them in a locker. And ironically, where they hid the key to the locker was in the, um, I think you call it a spine. You know how a book has a spine on it and there's like a space, little space. Sometimes, especially if the spine's broken or if the book's old, you can shove something in there. Well, Myra hid the little key in the spine of her prayer book. And the plan was that he would be home. And there was none of this following Myra on the bike and pointing somebody out bullshit. He left it up to Myra, he says, to pick somebody. He would be home establishing an alibi. And Myra was supposed to pick up a kid and take them to a pre-selected spot on the moor where they had been and they had supposedly practiced for this. And how they practiced was they said that, well, they actually, they, they both agreed on this. Myra pretended to be a dead body and Ian pretended to carry her. Not quite sure why, but she was saying about how her ass was kind of up on his shoulders and her head was hanging down and how uncomfortable that was. And I'm sure that was. But anyway, Ian's home getting ready and he puts a knife in a band under his sleeve and he comes out on his way out of the house and he looks at the clock and he asks his parents, is that clock right? And they're like, yeah, that's right. It was 7.45 p.m. I guess this was his way of establishing that he was home at 7.45. He put on surgical gloves and covered them with leather gloves. So he drove around the area. He didn't see Myra's van. So he assumed that she must have got somebody and took them to the moor. And years later, when discussing this, he said, quote, it was the beginning of an existential exercise, end quote. And on his way to the moor to meet Myra and whoever she has with her, he's all excited, wondering who she got. Is it a boy or a girl? They decided that they wanted an older kid. And their logic here was that if it was a younger kid, the kid would be missed sooner or there would be a bigger fuss and more people looking for the kid than if it was an older one. So he gets to the prearranged spot on Saddleworth Moor and pulls in on his motorcycle beside Myra's van. He said Pauline and Myra were in the van smoking and Myra said something like, oh, I thought you were never coming. And he said, well, there was a lot of traffic. And Pauline nodded hello. And supposedly Myra said, well, we better go look for this glove because the sun's fading. Ian said he was walking about five yards ahead of Pauline and Myra. And he said, quote, the black light began to illuminate my vision. I was scrutinizing the grass closely to allow the girl and Myra to walk past me. Pauline's eyes were also focused on the ground. I moved forward to grasp the girl's neck in a Japanese stranglehold. She collapsed onto the ground and stared up at me. 
I knelt down and said, don't make a noise and you'll be all right. It's pointless. She turned to plead with Myra, who was standing looking down, and Pauline said, Myra, tell him to stop. Her expression was taunting and pitiless. That's will be Myra. Myra snapped. Just keep quiet, Pauline. But Myra, tell him I'm unwell, Myra. She means it's her time of the month. So, supposedly, Myra knelt down and unbuttoned Pauline's coat, and Ian stood there looking around to make sure nobody was in sight. Myra took off Pauline's coat and unzippered her dress, and she took off her bronze necklace, the one that her mother had given her, and put it on the grass beside her. She tried to unfasten her bra, and Pauline got upset, of course, and clutched the front of her chest and said, Myra, please don't, please don't. And then Myra fondled her, and Ian, pervert that he was, said, quote, I was aroused by the lesbian seduction. The girl lay passively accepting the violence and her humiliation with half-closed eyes. I leaned towards her and kissed her left breast, end quote. He said he got a jealous look from Myra as he kissed Pauline, and that they both, quote, carried out sexual acts on Pauline. And then Ian told Pauline to get dressed, which she did, and then reached for the necklace. According to Ian, Myra snatched the necklace and said, quote, you won't be needing this where you're going, unquote. So Ian got mad at this, and he impulsively hit Myra hard across her face. And the reason for this he gave later was, quote, to warn the victim beforehand with a gratuitous remark broke an absolute with me, the man who has no absolutes, end quote. So he was mad because Myra insinuated that they were going to kill her. And he wanted Pauline to have no clue of what was coming next. He wanted her to be surprised when he killed her. And then Myra said, she's Pauline Reed. And at first, Ian didn't understand. He didn't know what she's talking about. And then he suddenly realized who she was. And he said he thought that Myra purposely targeted her to get rid of who she thought was her sister's rival, you know, for David Smith, which she wasn't. And none of this was true. And Myra would insist till she died that she picked Pauline at random because she was walking down the street. So Myra had broken the first rule of Ian's, which is there's supposed to be no connecting thread between them and the victim. And Ian said he left those two alone and went to the van to get a camera. And he said, quote, I saw the glint of the steel kitchen knife on the grass. Myra had attempted to stab the girl's chest, but the knife didn't penetrate her. The blade was bent. Myra had punched the girl's head and face. Blood was streaming from her nose and had soaked the front of her dress, end quote. Then he took his knife out of his sheath. This was a, like a, a sharp knife. He knelt down and cut Pauline's throat. He, he had to do it twice. He wanted, was aiming for the carotid artery, but he didn't get it the first time. And he said, blood gushed from her throat. She was dead within seconds. So according to Ian, they dug a hole of about four or five feet, and they both put Pauline into the hole. And he said that, we'll see, he likes to take pictures and remember each of these events. But it was too dark to take pictures by this time. So they carefully counted their steps back to the van, 
so that they would remember exactly where her grave was and come back and take pictures or and to also make sure that nobody had disturbed the grave. When they got back to Myra's grandmother's house, they carefully cleaned up all of their traces. They burned their clothes in the fireplace. They cleaned the van with soap and water. And Ian kept saying he didn't want to leave any forensic. That was his word. And remember, this is way before the Investigation Discovery Channel and, and CSI and stuff. This is 1963. So the fact that he even knew that term, even though he had it a little bit wrong, is really quite amazing. I don't even know where he got it from. But Ian cut his clothes into strips, which he burned in the fire. Myra scrubbed the shovel, and then Ian threw the bloody knife in the fire. It took them till 4.30 in the morning to do all this. When they were finally done, they had a bottle of wine in celebration. Well, they're always having wine, but this was supposedly to celebrate and, of course, they discussed the details of what they had done, you know, relived it in their mind. And supposedly, Myra took some of Grand's Nembutal, which is like a depressant or sleeping pill, so that she could sleep. And they fell asleep in front of the fire. Again, it's the middle of July. I don't know why they have a fire. Well, they burned their shit in the fire. So they woke up about 6.45 which wasn't a very long sleep. And Myra noticed that there was blood on the collar of Ian's black coat. She tried to wash it off in the sink, but it didn't come out all the way. They took it to a dry cleaners and they left the name Kennedy, which was the name of the U.S. president at that time. Then they stopped to buy fags, which the British call cigarettes. And we'll see throughout the story that Ian especially loves his fags, and he was a chain smoker. And the next day, Ian was supposedly furious when Myra announced that she'd taken a couple things from Pauline. She took the necklace, remember the gold necklace that her mother gave her, as, I guess, a kind of souvenir or trophy, and she took some coins from her. So Ian had a fit, and he insisted that they bury the necklace, and they spent the coins, and then he threw the knife in a river. So after they got home from doing all these things, everybody's in the house. There's Gran and the mother, Maureen, and a cousin, and they're all talking excitedly about Pauline Reed going missing. And the mother asked Myra, well, what do you think, Myra? And Myra says, oh, I hardly knew Pauline. She was Mo's friend. Then Myra and Ian went to the cinema to see a movie called The Legion's Last Patrol. And you know how movies have, like, themes. This had a song that was like a trumpet solo. So they started to associate this song with Pauline's murder, and this started a trend. Every murder after that, they would associate with a song, like they would, one or the other of them would hum it when they wanted to remember it. And another myth about this case is that Ian would buy Myra a record of the song to commemorate the event, and that's not true. They would just pick a song and, I guess, say, okay, this is going to be 
the song for this murder. When they came back from the cinema, they saw that the neighborhood was infiltrated with police. They were everywhere, going door to door, asking questions, like they usually do when somebody disappears. Supposedly, David was questioned twice because... You know, he's got a criminal record. And Ian asked Maureen all kinds of questions like, do they have any suspects? Do they have any theories? And years later, Myra said, quote, as Mr. Mars Jones, that's the prosecutor, further said, the horrible secret we later shared bound us together more closely than any ties of affection possibly could. There was no going back in what I said shortly after our arrest, that it was he and I against the world, felt very much the case for as long as our relationship lasted, end quote. And I mentioned that they would often go to Pauline's grave, and then when they added some other graves there on the moor. They would visit all of these and take pictures of them. And Ian, of course, being the photographer, he would develop these pictures and put them in an album. And if you were just any old person looking through this album, you wouldn't think anything of it. It's just pictures of them and on the moors and rocks and grass and just people being outside. And dogs, remember, they love dogs. Gran had a, I think she was like a border collie named Lassie, original name for a dog. And Lassie had babies, and one of them they kept and they named Puppet. And Puppet was in many of these photos taken on the moors. Mara said that she coped by, quote, walling herself in or shutting off emotions. So poor Joan Reed, that would be Pauline's mother, was admitted to Springfield Mental Hospital. And she's quoted as saying, quote, it was just one living in hope all the time, thinking she'd come home. I was sat with my coat on for about three months, waiting for daylight to come to run out to see if I could find her. I was just crying and crying, thinking about what had happened in my mind, and I kept thinking about it. It built up and built up, and I think that's what caused it, my nervous breakdown. I always had a living hope that she was about somewhere. I never thought she was dead or anything happened to her in any way. I had a hope that she was alive and walking about somewhere. I was always looking. I even did an Avon job, going from house to house thinking I'd find her in one of the houses. I went miles on my own, traveling on buses and everything, thinking I'd see her on a bus, and I'd been running after that bus. I never thought that Myra Hindley and Ian Brady was to do with it all, because her sister was a near neighbor, lived next door, but one to Maureen. She went visiting there. Myra Henley was talking to me normally and saying she was sorry about Pauline knowing she had done that. I didn't think till after. It all came back to me. What was what? End quote. So interestingly, Myra started a new relationship. She still had Ian, of course, but the person she started screwing around with was, of all people, a cop. His name was Norman Sutton. In one version, he gave her a ticket. That's how they met. In another version, he asked her about the van that she had for sale, and this would be the black van. They wanted to get rid of it because it had been used in a murder. And this was definitely true about Norman. Ian knew about him, 
and Norman knew about Ian. So Norman would be at Grand's visiting with Myra, and he would hear Ian's motorcycle pulling up outside and would sneak out the back door. Did I mention that he was married? Yeah, he was. So later after they were arrested, he came forward and said, you know, I was with Myra. I didn't know about this, blah, blah, blah. And sadly, he was kind of ostracized from the uh, police community. Years later, Duncan's staff visited Norman, who was in a nursing home then. And Norman said, quote, Brady was a complete maniac. He came around when I was there having a cup of tea. The bastard started screaming at me. He wanted to kill me, end quote. Their next murder happened in November of 1963. They were watching TV, and if you believe Ian, he says that it was Myra who brought up that she thought it was time to do another one. And if you believe Myra, well, it was Ian who said it's time to do another one. But regardless, one of them said it, so they started making plans. So they sat around the table with a map and looked at the different neighborhoods. And they wanted to go for a place that was not close to where they lived in Gorton, but close to Saddleworth Moor. So they decided on a town called Ashton Underline. And this was a market town. The big attraction there was a, in the United States, we would call them flea markets or like open air markets, where they would have all these vendors that had out things, fruits, vegetables. It's just like stuff for people to buy. So they did their reconnaissance. They get on Ian's motorcycle and they see that there's a market there. They have stalls and Ian decides we're going to pick the kid from here. And they pick Saturday, November 23rd, which Saturday is a busy market day. And that's probably why. Myra rented a car a week in advance from a place called Warren's Autos. It was a white Ford Anglia and Ian was irritated when he saw it. He's like, what did you do with a white car? We're going to get it all muddy and dirty, taking it to the moors, which is exactly what they did. It said that when they took the car back, it was quote unquote filthy. The night before, they put their suitcases in the railroad station again, and they bought this stuff called Pro Plus, which is described as a mild caffeine-based stimulant that Ian would use before each murder. And I don't even know what to compare that to. Maybe like Red Bull or, or an energy drink or something like that. And before we get into exactly what happened with the murder, I'll introduce you to the next victim, which sadly, I don't have a whole lot of information about. His name was John Kilbride. He was an adorable little 12-year-old boy. I have a few pictures of him. He had the cutest grin, and he was the oldest of seven kids of Sheila and Pat Kilbride on Small Shaw Lane in Ashton Underline. He only lived two miles from the market, and he would often go to the market and hang around and help the people that sold there pack up their stuff and clean up. And usually they would give him a little bit of money or a treat or something. He had blue eyes and brown hair, and he liked to go to movies. So on that morning, it was a Saturday morning, he gets up and he went to see his grandmother. He helped his grandmother do odd jobs like putting on her stockings. And I just have the image of my grandmother and her stockings. And that's a horrible thing for a kid to do. 
here, put on grandma's stockings. So this poor kid, he had a friend named John Ryan. So they went to the cinema to see a movie called The Moguls. And then they went to help people in the marketplace. And John got a little bag of biscuits, which apparently in England are like hard cookies. They left the cinema at 5 p.m. and he was last seen at 5.30 in Ashton Town Center. So to create an alibi, Ian and Myra are out and about. They drove to the town of Staffordshire, which this is interesting. Well, to me, I don't know if anybody else cares, but it's home to two amusement parks, Alton Towers and Drayton Manor. So anybody from England, let, let me know if you've been to either one of those. I've seen a lot of videos of both of them, especially Alton Towers, and it looks really cool. But they weren't interested in amusement parks. They were taking pictures of themselves near rocks, and they stopped for coffee. And then, then they went to a hardware store. And you know that meme or that joke? You've probably seen it online. It's something like, you know, you're in the checkout at Walmart or a hardware store, and name three items that is going to make the cashier be uncomfortable. This is literally that joke that they literally bought a thin cord, a small serrated kitchen knife, and a shovel. I'm not shitting you. They, you're going to see a lot of things that just make you go, hmm, here. Because for people that think they're master criminals, they're pretty fucking stupid. Myra supposedly wore a black wig and a scarf. So they're at the market, and Myra had to go somewhere to pee. So while she's off doing that, Ian's looking around, and he saw John sitting on a wall eating a little bag of biscuits. And he's like, yeah, I want I want him. So Myra comes out, and they walk past him, like looking for witnesses. And I, well, I'm trying to understand how they're thinking. And I'm sure there's tons of people there. I don't know what they mean by a witness. So anyway, they go back and they approach John and Myra said to him, you're out late for such a young boy, aren't you? Now it's like 530, but it will, it's November, so it will probably be darker, just starting to get dark. And Ian said, we've got kids and we'd be worried if they were out like you with it getting dark. They offer him a ride home and he's like, okay. So they all walked to the car, and Myra asked him, what's his name? And he said, John, but people call me Jack. He says he lives on Small Shaw Lane. So Ian gets in the back, John gets in the front, and John may have wondered why these people's car is covered with plastic, but of course he's too polite to say anything. And Myra said to him, do you want an adult treat? Like, how about some sherry, which I think is a kind of wine. I I don't know. I don't drink alcohol. So he's like, yeah, cool. This poor kid, he's 12. He's sitting there eating his biscuits. And these people are like, you know, do you want to ride home? Would you like some booze? And he's just like, hell yeah, you know. So this part I think is weird. They're like, well, the whole thing's weird. They're like, well, we have to go home to get it. And Ian said, now that we're almost home, why don't we drive up by where we picnicked this afternoon and get that pair of gloves you left? I've just remembered them. And he explained to John that. This pair of gloves is really important because it was an anniversary present from him to Mara. And this is just stupid because it's like, do you want some sherry? Well, okay, but we left it at home. But on the way, would you 
come help us look for gloves that we left. And remember, it's dark now. While we were having a picnic here at the end of November. Oh, uh, okay. Now I'm thinking maybe this is why they went for kids, because adults would be like, what the fuck is wrong with you people? But these poor kids didn't know any better. So they get to the moor, too. Of course, it's like a prearranged place. And Ian asks John to come help him. And he's got a torch or a flashlight. According to Mara, she stood as a lookout on a hill while Ian went with John. So at eight o'clock, he comes back by himself. And this is so stupid. Mara goes, did you hurt him? And Ian said, no more than I had to. He said the knife was too blunt. He had to strangle him with a string. So they went home and cleaned up. Ian cut up his clothes and shoes, burned them in the fireplace, put the knife in there also, and they washed the shovel. Jeff Newpfer, the former head of the Greater Manchester CID, said, quote, about, this is about Ian. He was unusually forensically aware. The level of planning was quite extraordinary, end quote. So then they had some wine, of course. These people were always drinking wine. And I told you before when he was a teenager that Ian had become an alcoholic. And he's taking Myra with him. The next day, she took the car back to the rental place. And she comes home. She's still drunk, Myra. And her grandmother's like, another hangover. And Myra said, stop lecturing me. So Ian and Myra go to the park. They're sitting on the bench reading daily newspaper. And of course, the disappearance of John Kilbride is, you know, the main story. And Ian was reading it aloud. And, and uh, newspaper must have mentioned that they're Catholic and they had seven kids. And he said something about Catholics, quote, breeding like animals. And Myra's hung over and has a headache and everything. And she said, shut up. There's not too many differences or major differences between Ian and Mara's versions of events. He said that she didn't wear a wig. She said she did. Ian also denied that he used a knife. And he said, which does make sense, why would he use a blunt knife? He said that he strangled John. Ian said Mara was not acting as a lookout. She was there helping him to kill John. He said they both struggled with him. Myra held his wrists and Ian pulled down his pants and sodomized him. Then he strangled him with his hands. Ian dug a grave and before he put dirt on John, he spanked him on the ass, shook his fist at the sky and said, quote, take that, you bastard. And years later in prison, he's asked to explain what he meant by that gesture and that saying. And he said, quote, this was my gesture in the face of whatever malignant force it is, which underlies the universe, devoted only to chaos, end quote. Typical Ian, big pretentious explanation for what narrows down to is a bunch of bullshit. And for some reason, this is another thing that would eventually do them in. Ian wrote John's name down in a notebook that they had among their stuff, you know, their maps and plans and everything. So, of course, eventually when John doesn't come home, his family gets worried. And his mother, Sheila, said, quote, I thought John had stayed in the cinema to watch the film Round Again, which you could do in those days as it carried right on, end quote. So they called the police. The police came early the next day, 
and they had a really big search, 2,000 volunteers. There were 500 posters of him made and hung up. They had what they call sniffer dogs, and these people looked everywhere, woods, canals, pools, trenches, derelict buildings, and the land behind the Ashton Cricket Ground. Everywhere you went, everybody was talking about what could have happened to John. And when they talked about it at work, Myra would keep her head down and just try to ignore them. So one night, Myra and Ian are watching TV, and somebody on TV randomly says the quote, I'm in charge. So Ian says to Myra, what do you think I get out of doing what we've done? Meaning, of course, kill people. And Myra says, well, it was about being in charge, having the power of life and death. And Ian smiled and said, good. It's the same for you, right? And she said, yeah. So you know that uh, saying that killers often return to the scene of their crime? Well, obviously these two do. I mean, how many times have they gone to the moors and taken pictures of, of the grave sites? But one weird thing they did, they rode the motorcycle to Smallshaw Lane. That's where the Kilbrides live. Not right in front of it, but just kind of like from afar. And they just sat there and stared at it while they were eating fish and chips. I don't know if they were waiting to see somebody, if they were just gloating. Who knows? Who knows what was going through their minds? But they returned to the grave for New Year's Eve to have their little celebration with, of course, their booze that they have. And Ian held up the uh, bottle to the sky and made like a toasting gesture and said to John, in the meantime, poor John's family is struggling, of course. His mother always set an extra place for him at the table, hoping that someday he would come home. And a few years after his murder, his dad, Pat, said, quote, I just went haywire. I became an alcoholic, end quote. And sadly, they divorced five years after John was killed. There was a cop named Detective Chief Inspector Joe Mounsey. And he, for some reason, was like obsessed with finding John. And John became known as Mounsey's lad. And as fate would have it, he would be there when his body was finally found. So at some point, Ian officially moves into Myra and Grant's house. We don't know how Gran felt about that. Probably not too good because she wasn't real crazy about Ian. So in May of 1964, Myra gets a minivan because they have this thing about we must always have a different car. And by June of 1964, they both have the itch to kill again. In the next murder, which is number three, Myra claimed she didn't know the details, only that the place would be the neighborhood of Longsight, which was Ian's neighborhood or where he came from because now he's living with Myra and Gran. So before we get into the details of the murder, which for this one, there aren't too many. Let's meet our victim. His name was Keith Bennett. He was 12, the oldest of four, and he had just turned 12 four days before this. And this date was June 16th, 1964. And the previous night, he had been at what they called a swimming gala for his school and I'm assuming that's like a swim meet. And he got a certificate because he swam the length of the pool for the first time. So he was probably a happy kid. 
It's summer. He just turned 12. He just got a certificate for swimming. And he was on his way, along with his siblings, to their grandmother's house. Every Tuesday, the kids of Winnie, their mother, went to their grandmother's house for the night, while their mom went to play bingo at St. Aloysius, which is funny because my grandmother went to bingo at a church called St. Aloysius, too. But I guess there's probably more than two churches called that in the world. So this family lived on Eston Street, which which was a cul-de-sac. Keith's mom, Winnie, was 30 at the time. She was seven months pregnant. And sadly, she got so upset from the disappearance of Keith that she gave birth prematurely to David, who fortunately turned out okay. Winnie was divorced from Keith's dad and was now married to Jimmy Johnson. So she will be known as Winnie Johnson. And she will be mentioned later on in the story. So remember that Winnie Johnson is Keith Bennett's mom. So that evening, the kids are on their way to their grandmother's. Her name was Gertrude, and she lived on Morton Street. There were three of them. Alan was eight, Maggie was three, Ian was seven, and then, of course, Keith. For some reason, Alan, Maggie, and Ian went on ahead, and Keith was kind of straggling behind, but he was with his mom up until they got to Stockport Road. She watched him cross the, they call it a zebra crossing. It's like a crosswalk. She watched him to make sure he crossed the road safely. Then she turned around to go back to her her own house. And sadly, that's the last that she ever saw him. Alan, Keith's brother, would say later on, quote, The next day, because we didn't have a phone, was when we found out Keith was missing. Panic set in, and I couldn't take any more. I just kicked my ball at the wall for hours in the street just to get away. I kept looking at the bedroom window and the room we shared, expecting him to pop his head up with a big smile on his face. I would look at his empty bed and still talk to him, asking, where are you, Keith? I thought he had been kidnapped and someone was holding him, end quote. So what happened was, when those three got to their grandmother's, she just figured, and the other kids figured, oh, well, Keith just must have decided to stay home. And they didn't really think anything of it. So they didn't call. Well, they couldn't have called. They didn't have phones. Keith's mom, Winnie, and say, you know, Keith's missing because they didn't realize until the next day that he was even missing. The next day, the other three kids come home and Winnie's like, where's Keith? And they're like, uh, we thought he was here. And then there would be that oh shit moment where it's like, um, no, he's not. So they realized that he was missing. So of course the police got involved. And unfortunately, Keith's stepdad, Jimmy Johnson, was the primary suspect until Mara and Ian were arrested. So that sucks because the police, it seemed like from what I could understand, you know how they kind of narrow in on one person with tunnel vision instead of looking at other possibilities. I get the impression that that's what they did. And they even dug up this poor dude's yard in his floorboards looking for Keith's body, which of course they didn't find. So I would say on that particular kid, the police dropped the ball. And these are the two different versions we have of what happened to Keith. 
We know that he was picked up by Myra in the van, their new minivan. She claims that Ian was in the backseat. Ian claims that he was on his motorcycle and he later followed them to the moor after she picked Keith up. It doesn't matter. That detail is really trivial. But Myra saw Keith by himself and they had a new little trick up their sleeve. She had a bunch of boxes in the van. And she asked him if he would help her load the boxes. Really not clear to me. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Like, load them where? Bring them into her house? I don't know. It, like I said, it, it doesn't make sense. But she said, if you help me do this, I'll take you home. So he said, yeah, he gets in the van. So here comes the stupid glove story again. And they say, would you go to the moor with us and help us look for a glove? Yeah, okay, sure. They get to the place that they usually park at Saddleworth Moor. And Keith, understandably, is getting kind of antsy. He's like, uh, you know, I'm afraid my grandmother will worry if I'm home late. And Myra was like, oh, don't worry. We'll have you back in plenty of time. And this is another weird thing. If if we believe Ian, which, you know, do we want to believe Ian? I don't know. He said that they parked the van and walked three miles from the road. That's a long way. I think that most people after well, at least a mile will be like, hey, what the fuck? This is ridiculous. Where is this glove? What are you dragging me so far from civilization for? So I don't know how accurate that is. But they get to a spot that Ian and Myra considered their place, their favorite spot on the moor where they would picnic, have sex, and practice target shooting with guns. According to Myra, they get to an area where the landforms are called Stony Brook, it's obviously a brook, and Ho Grain Stream, which are both water formations. According to her, she sat and listened to the water while Ian went off with Keith and killed him and buried him. According to Ian, he said that while the three of them were walking, he whistled and the song that he whistled was, and this is really, well, anything I say would be disturbing, but it was When You Wish Upon a Star. And Ian grabbed Keith's throat from behind and wrestled him to the ground. Keith screamed and struggled, of course. And he said that Myra held his legs while Ian pulled his pants down, sodomized him, and then strangled him with his bare hands. There's another version that says that he used a cord like he did with John Kilbride. So again, not a real important detail. He strangled him, whether manually or with a ligature is not known. So they bury him. And later on, Alan Keatley asked Ian when he was interviewing him, where was Myra during the murder of Keith? She said that she didn't see you kill him. And Ian said, quote, she was a yard from me. I couldn't keep her away. She enjoyed it, end quote. It was dark by the time they got back to the van. When they got home, they burned their clothes and shoes, counted their buttons, cleaned the van. The next day, they did a better cleaning of the van. And Ian had taken a picture of Keith with his pants down and blood on his body, which can you possibly get anything more incriminating? Again, for people who think they're so smart, especially Ian, he makes some strange choices. The picture supposedly turned out blurry, so Ian destroyed it. And this murder also had a song associated with it. I don't know why. I don't know if they heard it on the radio, either to or from the moor. 
but it was It's Over by Roy Orbison. And Kate's poor grandma blamed herself, which, I mean, it's nobody's fault but Ian and Myers. And supposedly she'd searched for two years in abandoned buildings and all kinds of places for Keith. There were rumors that he had run away to London, which is really strange. A 12-year-old kid just picking up and running away to the big city. But that just goes to tell you that people will believe anything. So we've discussed the first three murders. And if I really thought I could cover this case in just four episodes, I told that to Alex and he just put these, you know, we were texting. He put these big laughing faces. I'm like, yeah. And I said, in my defense, this is the most infamous case in the UK, supposedly. So you know me and my details. There's no way we're going to get this done in four. Next episode, and I'm going to try to have this out before next Thursday. So and I don't want to drag it out too long. I'm imagining that people are waiting to hear what happens. But realistically, if you really want to know what happens, you can look up on Wikipedia or something. So it's not like I'm literally leaving people hanging in suspense, but I'm going to try to get it out as soon as I can. Next time, we're going to cover the last two murders. The fourth murder is especially disturbing because they recorded it and there's no actual recording, audio recording, because the police never released it, but there is a transcript. And I'll not read the whole thing because a lot of it's repetitive, but I will tell you what's on it just so that you can appreciate the horror and the terror that this poor little girl endured. And before I sign off, I want to give a huge shout out to my niece, Delaney, who just graduated from college. She went to Washington and Jefferson, and she got not one, but two bachelor's degrees, one in psychology and one in women's and gender studies. And that is so awesome. I barely made it through with one. And then she's going to Pitt in the fall to get a master's degree in counseling. So congrats, Delaney. I have a family full of smart and talented people. If you asked for a TCU pen and you didn't get it yet, you should definitely have it by now. If you didn't, let me know. And I will see you next time. Class dismissed.